I'm Mark Lynch, director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast, our series of conversations with scholars in the field. With us today is Kayvon Harris. He's the author of A Social Revolution, Politics and the Welfare State in Iran, just published by University of California Press, and an assistant professor of sociology at UCLA. Kayvon, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So this is a really interesting book on the evolution of the social welfare state in Iran before and after the Iranian Revolution. Tell us a little bit about the major argument of the book. What is the major contribution that you think this book is making to our understanding? The first contribution is to answer the question whether there is a welfare system in Iran at all. And in the book, I lay out the main social welfare organizations both that both preceded the 1979 revolution and the ones that germinated afterwards. And then I asked the question, how can we explain the expansion of both social policy organizations and access to these organizations by the majority of the population? Because expansion to social, of social policy and access to social welfare has uh, grown since 1979. And previous looks uh, and examinations from a very abstract level of social policy in Iran and the broader Middle East have often got, uh, been done through the lens of the Rantia state, this idea that since states have access to oil revenues, they can take these oil revenues, sell them on the, from the world market, and distribute to uh, select individuals social benefits uh, and, and social protection from the market while leaving everybody else out. But very few scholars have looked at the institutions themselves and historically traced the development of them. So I ask, why and how did particular social welfare organizations in Iran grow uh, and, and uh, continue to be created? And I have three main mechanisms I've identified in the book that I think were key to understanding why, specifically in the case of Iran, that uh, social welfare continues to expand after the revolution. And the first is what I call popular mobilization, that the 1979 revolution was one of the most mobilized uh, upsurges in the 20th century. Some scholars estimate that at least 10% of the population was at some point active. Uh, and then the mobilizational processes uh, of popular upsurge and demands from Bolo didn't stop in 79. There was a long war with Iraq from 1980 to 88, where war mobilization from above, of course, by the Islamic Republic, also from below by individuals who participated but then made new demands continued to occur, and then electoral mobilization from the 1990s onward. And it's no coincidence that uh, as a result of, and usually right after, many of these mobilization drives social welfare expanded. The second mechanism in the book, and I think it's very important, is elite competition. You know, the Islamic Republic is the only uh, revolutionary state in the 20th century which did not produce a single party or a party state uh, apparatus. Instead, the political elite in Iran is full of lumpers and splitters. So you have associations, lists, networks, um, organizations, and every election they kind of fall apart, reform, sometimes rebrand, and individuals can leave. So there's no party apparatus to discipline elites to stay inside of a single organization. And this competition has often occurred over um, social policy expansion. 
So, for example, one uh, faction will be running an election will promise something, and the other faction wins, and they'll carry it out anyway, and vice versa. So you can actually look at uh, expansions in social insurance, uh, poverty aid, uh, health care, and, and see how elections and interleague competition matters in this process. And the last is something that, at least for the Middle East, makes Iran is, Iran is a little bit unique. Uh, although many states in the Middle East say that the, their, their main raison d'etre is economic growth, uh, the geopolitics of the revolution and, and of the region since 1979 has meant that as much as the political elite of the Islamic Republic disagree on almost everything uh, in an ideological sense, um, they agree on one thing, and that, you know, for the revolution to prove its merits, uh, catching up with wealthy countries, showing that economic development is possible, is uh, a shared uh, goal. And they all agree on that today. And they have agreed on it, arguably, since the, you know, as soon as the revolution ended. Uh, and so, while they disagreed on policy, they agreed that a developmental state was the goal of the revolution, uh, but aid for this uh, process, uh, for this project, uh, had to be, you know, could not be found from outside. They felt that they were isolated from the great powers and that all drives for development had to come from inside. So as opposed to relying on, for example, you know, aid from the West like Egypt, uh, Iran had no possibility, even though they tried and kept getting turned down. So they wanted to create what I call in the book an anti-systemic developmental state. And that's a term that loosely means that, you know, instead of... Uh, linking up with outside um, economic allies that, you know, that most of the resources for producing a developmental state had to come from inside. And this meant, once again, that as these elites were competing and uh, driving down into society to mobilize individuals for their own political projects, uh, the goal of the developmental state meant that they saw social policy, welfare expansion, the uh, higher education expansion as all goals and inputs into the project of developmental states. So it's these three mechanisms, popular mobilization, interleague competition, and an anti-systemic developmental state that, for me, best explained why in this country uh, the social welfare ex uh, system kept expanding, proliferating organizations, uh, and in the end, actually changing the life standards, the living standards of a lot of the population. So there's a lot going on there. So let's kind of go back to the beginning. So you start off a lot of the book, you, you think that there's that the Rentier state concept uh, helps to explain a lot, but you think it's really lacking to really get at what's happening inside of Iran. So let's unpack that a little bit. Is, is this a problem with the Rentier state concept in general, or is, is there something about Iran which really makes it different? I think there's something wrong with the concept in general. I'm going to, I'm going to go uh, full on and say that I think the concept explains little, uh, unless in a large cross-national sense where Iran's revenue may in particular time periods have a, you know, an additional effect, negative effect. Uh, my colleague at UCLA, Michael Ross, has done the best to explain this, you know, these patterns, and his argument, of course, is limited to the post-oil shock era anyway. Um, but I think in the Rancho State literature that the attention to the politics of production, uh, in that sense, where the revenue is gained um, and who gets the revenue, occludes the politics of distribution. So, you know, who ends up getting it, why, and through what institutions. And, you know, 
as much as we like to model uh, elite behavior, kind of formally thinking about what a dictator would do if he had access to unlimited revenues, in reality, the structures of states, uh, both inside the black box of the state itself, as well as the institutions which link individuals to the state, have histories. And when you look at the histories, the development of the institutions tend not to fall along lines of kind of what popped out of Zeus's head if a dictator decided, aha, now I have a bunch of revenue and I'm going to now create a population which is loyal to me. Uh, there are historical contexts. And in the Iranian case, you know, the pre-revolutionary period, the Pahlavi monarchy, you know, created uh, a particular type of social welfare system. I call it corporatist. It looked very Latin American in many ways. Looked like the social policy systems of Argentina and, and there's and a lot of institutions there that you describe in a lot of detail. Lots of institutions that in 1979 the revolution did not take place uh, with a blank slate. There's no as much as revolutionaries all around the world like to claim that year zero is the beginning of their state. You know the Islamic Republic is built on the foundations of the Pahlavi monarchy, and over time the political elite began to appropriate utilize, and then actually expand many of the organizations that existed beforehand. And uh, it's very hard to guess which ones would be used versus other ones if we only looked at the politics of mm -hmm. production. So I think that the literature in general, which, by the way, you know, in the rest of the world, Latin America, East Asia, Eastern Europe, and Sub-Saharan Africa, there's a huge and burgeoning and theoretically rich literature on social policy. And it's very political, and it's mostly done by political scientists. And yet in the Middle East, this literature is nascent, uh, largely focused on clientless relationships as opposed to kind of large uh, historical developments. And so the, you know, the main goal of the book is to try to push uh, scholars of the Middle East to look at the other half of the equation. If, uh, you, know, in, you know, in the case of a book, for example, by Michael Herb, Michael Herb's Wages of Oil, you know, he, he argues that even in the two most classic Rantia states of the, you know, the Emirates and the Kuwait, you have very different political outcomes, very different distributional outcomes, and very different types of uh, popular movements. So, you know, I, mean, I think that the concept itself hides more than it reveals, and I'd love to uh, start a conversation where we start to use a, sep a separate set of concepts which are not Middle East specific. Now, one of the things, one of the puzzles you identify is that in both 1979 and in 2009, you have these major episodes of mass mobilization. And in each case, you try and tie that back to some of the contradictions which the social welfare state helps to create, the kinds of classes, the kinds of uh, social institutions, and the kinds of expectations that people have. Walk us through that a little bit. How does the kind of social welfare provision, which, as you said, Rantier State Theory would tell us is buying people off, how does that tend to help to produce the kind of mobilization challenging regimes? There's an irony, there's many ironies in the Islamic Republic, and, you know, some of their greatest efforts tended to look like the efforts, often hubristic efforts, of the Pahlavi monarchy. And I found, and as more and more I read the, the discourse of the political elite of post-revolutionary Iran, the more and more I saw sentences which literally could be lifted out of the mouth of Mohammad Reza Shah. It's Mohammad Reza Shah who said that we will become the fifth industrial power. As early as 1961, 62, he was you know, talking like this. And, and by the end of the Iran-Iraq war, 
uh, Prime Minister uh, Mousavi and then later President Hashim Rafsanjani both were making very similar types of claims that, that we will be producing economic growth, catching up with the West to show that Iran is XYZ. So it's not just that a state gets oil and then is, is uh, content with stagnation. One has to understand why the elite is driving for these projects and what they think is necessary for modernization, their definition of modernization, not ours. So I, in the book, both under the path of a monarchy and under the Islamic Republic, I try to understand what they thought at the time modernization looked like and what they thought they had to do to produce it. Um, and in both cases, it involved the production of technical cadres, of a professional technical elite. Uh, of course, every state thinks that if they give someone education, bring them in from the peasantry, that this person is going to be loyal for the rest of their life. And in fact, that's also what Rontier state theorists think. Turns out that people don't think like leaders and Rontier state theorists. Instead, they move up these newly created pathways of mobility, uh, and some of them turn out to be the most radical members of the opposition. And I think this is actually theoretically interesting. There's there's lots of discussion in Middle East politics about the absence of civil society, of arenas for associational life, and this is some kind of big problem uh, in, in, in the history of Middle East development. But in fact, lots of associa associational action, especially in the third world, has been created by states itself, arenas for uh, bringing in people who would never have otherwise interacted. And of course, often the state does this by creating corporatist organizations for peasants, for labor, for engineers. Um, and, you know, many, many years ago, there was a literature on this by people like Robert Bianchi, who wrote a book called Unruly Corporatism. It's one of my most favorite titles. I think I'm going to uh, borrow it uh, in the future because states make these associations and then individuals get pulled up and then fast forward a few years and these are sites of protest. Of course, not always. We need to understand when and why these occur. But in the case of the monarchy, you know, some of, a lot of the members, uh, the members of the uh, intelligentsia, which thought they were leading the revolution, were a product of the developmental drives of the Pahlavi monarchy. Fast forward to 2000, the 2000s in Iran. This is on this process is going on on steroids. Far more of society is linked up to the state through a variety of these organizations, whether they're, of course, universities. Uh, um, uh, engineering associations, you name it, uh, and these are the sites where political discussions are being had, uh, and in fact, you know, I mean, uh, this is why, by the way, that student movements in Iran are so powerful, because these movements were created by the state, uh, and it's inside these movements where dissent occurs uh, and you get oppositional mm -hmm. leads. Now, explain why this isn't simply a version of modernization theory. Explain why this is more than just what, uh, you know, Daniel Lerner would have told us to expect 50 years ago. Yeah. I, you know, I was, uh, uh, of course, everybody's trained these days not to believe anything modernization theory says. But there's modernization theory um, de jure and that all modernization looks like X, and we know what X is. Uh, and then there's the actually existing modernization in the world where states compete, uh, where states create institutions to try to either catch up in the world economy or produce a particular type of social structure, uh, or also try to control some segment of the population. And it's actually existing modernization, if you want to call it that, actually existing state building that I take seriously in the book. I take the ideas of the elites which create these institutions seriously because they think this is what modernization looks like. So... 
I would say that it is um, it's a ideational understanding of modernization as opposed to that. Well, they, it's some kind of you know many previous arguments about Iran were that Iran was engaging in some kind of pseudo or false modernization. This was a famous argument that was put forth after 1979 to explain the failure of the developmental project in the path of the monarchy, as if there was some kind of real modernization that everybody knew what it was, and somehow the monarchy had engaged in a false version of this. Of course, this is in the minds of the academic, not in reality. So I actually, I actually would say that in many ways this could be a neo-modernization argument, but the neo is the fact that I don't even know what modernization is supposed to look like. I just take seriously what states do when they think they're modernizing. So classes are in motion. People are moving. There is urbanization. There is education. There is all, all of the stuff. You're not sure where it goes. Well, we, should, we have to take away the endpoints of these processes. So if we thought that uh, education, uh, industrialization, um, the, the de-peasantization of the Middle East was going to produce X. We know that it didn't produce much of the things that we thought was at the end point of that story. But that doesn't mean that those processes weren't real uh, and that the Middle East wasn't one of them. I mean, if you take a look at the size of the public sector uh, in Iran and the rest of the Middle East, even today, but you know, go back 20, 30 years, it was the largest next to Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. It blew out uh, you know, the water, other public sectors in Latin America, and even East Asia. So, actually, the, the, there's a lot to look at comparatively in Middle East uh, state building. And I think that we've been, I mean, we've actually engaged in the process of deviant formation by coming up with a region-specific set of concepts that we use to, I would say, more describe than explain the processes of change in the region, Iran included, uh, compared to other regions where other regions engage in, cons in concept building, which seem to travel, seem to travel and are used. Uh, they're not, of course, northern-specific or European-specific, but there's this conversation among other regions where concepts can be borrowed and changed, but in the Middle East, I think we tend to stick on our own concepts. Let's uh, look really briefly at, at Iran itself, like in the last you know, 10 years or so. So when you have this elaborate uh, social welfare state that's evolved in this kind of disjointed, competitive type of political framework, who benefits? You know, who actually controls and benefits from the social welfare, welfare state in Iran as it exists today? All right. This is a great question because it overturns a lot of what we think was the both the point of uh, creating social policy organizations in Iran and who benefits from it. Uh, in, in many countries, uh, especially many middle-income countries, where the social welfare system is fragmented um, and also has a proliferation of different organizations, and so instead of merging a variety of them, often because interest groups uh, or segments of the political elite would rather not merge, instead they just make new ones. So we have a proliferation of new organizations, new linkages, as opposed to an erasure of the old. Uh, and, you know, when the elite is as fragmented as it is in Iran, it's very understandable why you can't get this single party to say, as in the case of China, for example, that we're just going to change the social policy system by fiat. Of course, it's more difficult in China than that, but I'm giving an <laughs> example. So in countries like this, whether it's Latin America or the Middle East uh, or, or, or other countries with large middle-income populations, who benefits is the middle and upper strata. And we've just implemented a large nationally representative social survey in Iran. And one of the questions we asked uh, in uh, December 2016 was, in your household, 
do you receive aid income or any other type of social insurance from a list of organizations? And I, and I actually you know, did this to, to really test the findings of the book. And we listed both so-called revolutionary organizations, often known as bunyads. Uh, the, most, the largest one is Imam Khomeini Relief Committee, which I have a chapter in the book about. And also the classic, kind of more boring for uh, policymakers, uh, Washington policymakers, organizations like the Social Security Organization, the Civil Service Pension Fund. And lo and behold, uh, more of the population is linked to the boring corporatist <laughs> organizations, and these have driven down into poor households. In the poorest stratum of our survey, more individuals through their households are connected to the Social Security Organization than to any of the boneyards. And this is a process of com competition and expansion of the, uh, over the years. And I would, myself was surprised that how deep the path, I mean, these are institutions that were created by the monarchy in modernization processes going back to the 1920s, how deep these reached down into society. While, in fact, the revolutionary organizations that are supposedly are at the basis of this oil, welfare, clientelist nexus are withering, at least at the level of linking individuals to the state on a mass level. I mean, Iran is not Lebanon. Iran has a population of 80 million. You can't explain mass politics in Iran through single anecdotal stories of clientelism. You can find clientelism if you want, but to, to link big electoral processes where uh, mobilization occurs at a short, in a short time period, we get surprises, you know, on a regular, regular basis in Iranian politics. To link that to this oil welfare nexus, I have found to be um, rather useless in, underst in understanding the surprises uh, post facto. So what do you think people should be looking at then? I think we need to, again, look at the, look at the middle institutions. You know, we actually need to have a meso-level uh, understanding of Iran, and I think actually of many other organizations. So Stefan Hertog did this in Saudi Arabia. We have uh, a good set of books uh, on the Levant uh, and uh, Egypt that are doing this. Um, I think that, you know, there should be a meso-turn in social science in the Middle East because from above, the map from above looks one way, and often we've been taking that map and formalizing it, um, and then maybe quantifying it and testing it. But uh, I think that if we look at the institutions themselves um, and take their history seriously, so in that sense that many of these are not rationally planned or, 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 or even interact with society through a rat choice kind of framework, if we, if we historicize them, look at the ways that they were created, I think we'll come up with... Uh, a wider set uh, of conceptual tools to understand why the Middle East is the way it is today. All right, we've been speaking with Kayvon Harris. He's uh, from the Department of Sociology at UCLA, author of the new book, A Social Revolution, Politics and the Welfare State in Iran. Uh, Kayvon, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much.